Psychology PhD, a podcast developed by grad students here in the Columbia University Psychology Department, where we discuss psych-focused graduate programs. Once again, I'm Monica Tew, a fifth-year student here in our program. This season, we're doing interviews with members of our department in order to learn a little bit more about the diverse types of experiences that people can have coming into grad school and during grad school. And in this episode, we're talking to the wonderful Muncie Jayakumar, who is a fourth year graduate student working with Dr. Miriam Alley here in our department. It is so great to have you here today. Hey, Monica. Nice to be here. I'm really excited. Yes. yes. Yeah. So let me have a sip of this tea and then we'll get started. So the very first thing I'd like to ask, uh, A, for our listeners, B, because I just like to hear people kind of, you know, tell their stories from start to finish, even though I know, you know, some details, I don't necessarily know the full story of kind of, if you'd like to talk about sort of your academic journey, like at what point, you know, did you know, oh, psychology is something I wanted to study and the kinds of things that you did that got you here? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a long story. So let's see. Um, my undergraduate... You take as much time as you need. <laughs> yeah, probably going to take the entire 40 minutes. But anyway, um, yeah, so my undergraduate education was actually in a completely different field. I did like biotechnology engineering. Um, I was actually born in India, but I moved to Dubai like when I was a year and a half. My parents moved there for work. So I pretty much did all of my schooling and undergraduate education there in Dubai. And, you know, as part of my undergraduate education, I didn't really have that much exposure to research. Like we had lab courses, but... Um, it wasn't like you started a project and finished it all on your own or even with an advisor. Um, and you like worked a lot in like wet lab kind of, you know, cells and tissue cultures, things like that. So at that point, like I, I think even till like my mid to late undergrad, I had no idea like that I liked research or like that I wanted to do research. I didn't know what a PhD was, I think. And so it really is by chance that I ended up in psychology and neuroscience. And like, I, I really am happy now that I did because I really would not have thought about it like in my undergrad. Um, so yeah, that's like kind of where I started off. But then mm-hmm. how I ended up here is just um, in my fourth year, I, in my fourth year of undergrad, I had um, an independent like research project that I was working on. And now I know that it was very theoretically ill-informed. Um, the question was, <laughs> Uh, yeah, the question was studies on blood grouping with respect to IQ or intelligent quotient. And like now looking back, like I, I see that. But at that point, I was like so fascinated. And I was like, whoa, this is something really cool. And I knew by then that I didn't enjoy working with cells and tissue culture. So I was looking for something else to do. And reading about IQ led me to read about the brain and psychology. And then I ended up reading like Gazanika's textbooks on cognitive neuroscience. And that's kind of when I was like, whoa, I love memory. Like my memory sucks. Why do people have really great memory? And that's the start (laughs) of the journey. So that's kind of like how I ended up doing like cognitive neuroscience of memory and like getting into psych and neuro research. Yeah, it's so cool, you know, to think about that, like, oh, you know, and I would say that this is fairly true for me too. For me, it was, um, Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational book. Uh, I read it in high school and I was like, wow, this is so cool. You can like study the ways in which people behave that, you know, a lot of it is very much, you know, if you find that one thing, be it textbooks or a class or through like a pop science book that 
you know, all we need is kind of that one spark to be like, hey, oh, I think this is cool. Like, right. I'm going to study more about it. Yeah. So from discovering kind of your interest in studying cognitive neuroscience and specifically studying human memory, um, where did you go from there? Yeah. So that started kind of the spark, like you just said, like, you know, it just ignited something. And I was like, this is so cool. And then I just kept reading more and more. I think I started doing like course era, like uh, kind of things on neuroscience and psych. Um, this was like pretty late in my undergrad. So there was like no time to, you know, apply to programs or anything of that sort. I was thinking about changing a field. So I just took a gap year and I kind of just thought like did a lot of like smaller internships. I like volunteered. I just did a lot of different things trying to figure out what I liked, but nothing came close to like that spark of finding like cognitive neuroscience and memory. And so I started just searching for like universities that had like a master's program or like a post-bac, like second bachelor's kind of program. And to be honest, that was very, very like limited. Um, I also tried to look for like research opportunities and this was where like I had my biggest like obstacle. So in Dubai, at that point, at least research wasn't a thing. Like there was hardly any research going on. Their entire focus of Dubai was on tourism as we know. Um, and even though I'm from India, I couldn't get a foot in the door in India because I never lived there, didn't know anyone, like, none, you know, it's just hard to get into a new place that way. And so I couldn't get research experience. And the only way forward was like, I apply for a master's and get a master's degree and move on from there. And so I applied to a bunch of different universities in the US, um, some in Canada and also the UK um, to try and get like a one or two year like master's in neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience or like psychology. And the one that actually ended up working out in like all respects uh, was just University of Texas at Dallas. They had this like um, master, master's in science, um, applied cognition in neuroscience. So I just ended up there. I ended up, um, yeah, just applying for that, getting in there. And that was like a good experience. I know I had to pay for it. And I know that a lot of people in the US, at least I've seen since then that um, these kinds of master's programs are like kind of discouraged um, because you pay quite a bit upfront. But for me, at least because I wasn't able to find the research experience, there was nothing that could, you know, kind of prove uh, to prospective uh, mentors that I was actually a strong research candidate. So this was the only way forward for me. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up at UT Dallas. That was like for my master's though, but there's still a long jump before I actually get to my PhD. <laughs> So then in your master's, can you, I'm, you know, just curious to hear, talk a little bit more about how much coursework you did, how much research did you do a thesis? Um, did, if you did a thesis, was your experience with that? Like, yes, like I'm going to keep going. Like I'm going to try to get a PhD. Yeah, really good question. Yes. Um, so I think when I was looking for master's program, my focus was that they would have a strong research component because I knew that's what I lacked. Like, you know, I could pick up on psych and neuroscience background, like that's fine, but I still needed to work in a lab and like get that real experience. Um, and so uh, in terms of that, I, the program, the reason I picked the UT Dallas program was because they were good enough in terms of core courses, but they also had these research credits that you do at the end of your program. And I think it was spanning over the last two semesters of your master's, so the second year of your master's. So I ended up like um, applying or uh, reaching out to um, Dr. Michael Rugg at UT Dallas, and I just asked if there were any like volunteer positions available. And so I just started volunteering at his lab. I started tracing the hippocampus um, of the human brain. Um, 
in aging uh, of population, so older adults as well as younger adults, but I focused mainly on the older adults. And that just really got me fascinated with the structure of the hippocampus and of the medial temporal lobe. And I was just really fascinated that, you know, this tiny little thing that's in our brain, um, kind of buried deep inside, could actually affect our memory performance or like future, um, can, you know, predict like the decline in our memory and things like that. So that just got me really, really interested. But that the 1.5 years that I spent there, like that was what solidified like, okay, I really want to do a research career um, in academia and in cognitive neuroscience of memory. Like I just, that kind of solidified that path for me. But even after that, like I considered applying for PhD programs directly, at, like, you know, um, after I was done with my uh, master's, but one, I just wasn't comfortable. I'd only worked for a year. Um, so, um, uh, would be my only reference, so to say. Um, and then I also wasn't like really keen on going directly into a PhD and living off of a student stipend. As an international student, it's it's good to have some amount of like, you know, resources before you actually start living as a grad student on a small stipend. Um, and so what I just decided to do was apply to like lab managing or like research assistant positions so that I could work full time on research, but also save up some money. And this, I was able to do that because as in, um, I was an international student on a visa, but as part of my F1 like student visa, I can get a, a three years of optional practical training for in the STEM fields. So I was able to work like for two years out of that, just getting the experience. And so, yeah, able to also save money for the future, which was kind of important to me at that time. Yeah. And so before we get to the next part of the story, um, if you could go just a little bit more into the visa stuff. Um, so the F1, this is the student visa that any um, like undergraduate or above level student would have, right? So someone finishing a bachelor's, a master's, all the same category? Yes, all of it is the same category. So you just get an F1 visa um, for student, uh, it's a student visa for uh, studying in the U.S., it's only, it's typically given only for like full-time programs, but of course, don't quote me on that. Like things, immigration rules change a lot. So yes. definitely check with your school. It's the same visa uh, for undergraduate, master's or PhD, but every time you go up a level, you get an additional um, couple of years of like optional practical training. And that can come really handy, especially when you're trying to figure out like exactly what your next step is and whether you want to pursue a uh, you know, a degree and more advanced degree. And so that's kind of what happened for me with my master's. So I had that like gap that I could use and I did that. Um, so yeah, um, it's definitely worth checking if your um, program is in the STEM because these kind of uh, optional practical training, the three years you get only for STEM fields. So that's something that is important to keep in mind. You get one year if it's a non-STEM field. Yeah, that's really good to know. And I mean, it like makes perfect sense for the kind of thing that someone might want to do before they get a PhD. I'm really thankful that that program still exists. Yes. Fingers crossed. I don't know the current status um, with the uh, immigration services, but so you ended up doing optional practical training. And before we get to the part where I know a little bit where the story is going, I'll ask about um, how did you choose where you ended up applying for um, paid research positions? Oh, good question. So that, um, I kind of knew I wanted to do memory research, but I was ready to do almost anything in memory. I wanted to keep my options broad. I really didn't have a specific question, which is kind of why I didn't apply to a PhD program then too, right? Like I just, there was like, I couldn't narrow it down a lot. 
I mean, now I know that you don't have to do that getting into a program. I now know like you don't have to narrow. You could go in broad and then figure it out. But at that time, I just felt like I needed a little bit more depth. So I was open to all memory like any lab that did memory research. But I think I focused on those that had a little bit more to do with um, just healthy populations, maybe aging, because I felt like aging was something that I had some experience in and it was definitely like really interesting to me. Um, the other things that I did consider were like um, whether they had funding, of course, for like a couple of years, because I knew I wanted to stay for a couple of years. Um, and like, I also checked about, like I asked, uh, Dr. Rugg, like who I worked with, Mick Rugg, and like some of the other mentors in the lab about the professors. And so I just wanted to check if they were good mentors, if this would be a good fit for like a future career. Um, and if I wanted to stay in the US, like of course it shouldn't, but it sort of did matter, like how well known the lab was and how um, scientifically strong the research was and things like that. So I kind of focused on those things. Um, and then so I did like apply to quite a bit of positions. I think like um, probably in April or May of that year, I applied to like almost anything that I could find that was related to memory. And I got a few interviews and most of them were like Skype interviews because this was pre-Zoom and pre, I don't know, Teams and all of that. Um, but yeah, most of them were like Skype interviews. And I just narrowed down based on interest, based on fit. So this is where we start to overlap a little bit because yeah. at the time that you were applying to full-time research assistantships, I was actually working also as a full-time research assistant uh, in Anthony Wagner's lab and we were hiring and we had a job ad open and we see this ad come in from someone who looked super qualified coming in with a master's from UT Dallas and one thing led to another and we ended up hiring you. Yay. So Monsi and I actually got to be co-workers for one year? Yeah, one year. one year. Yeah. One year because I was finishing up a two-year position and applying to grad school the year that Monsi was starting. So if you want to tell folks a little bit about what at least you did <laughs> when we were in the Wagner lab together. I started in the Wagner lab because, again, I was interested in memory and aging. And there was a huge study going on at the time, like um, that was a large scale multimodal aging study where we had healthy older adults coming in and like completing all of these different tests, both behavioral, neuropsychological, um, neuroimaging and so on. And so I think um, I got a ton of experience all across all of those different uh, mo modalities. But I think primarily a lot of my work focused on structural um, imaging, structural neuroimaging. Um, so there were structural MRI scans of the older adults, and I was mostly involved in uh, hippocampal delineation and um, looking at the subfields of the hippocampus and things like that. So that's kind of what I ended up doing a lot of. Of course, I got like a ton of good experience, like just running the scanner, like, you know, running an fMRI scanner is like really different and really cool the first time and the first 10 times you do it um, and things like that. And of course, like some analysis experience, um, experience reading journals and articles, which honestly was something that I really did not know how to do until then. Um, even though I had a master's, like they didn't like the education doesn't really focus on telling you how to read a paper. And I knew how to read like bio papers, but they were they were like completely in a different sphere. So I think like uh, being in Anthony's lab might have been the first time I started learning how to read like psych and neuro papers and like how to parse the different methods and statistics used um, and things like that. Yeah. So it was definitely a really great experience and it was awesome like overlapping with you, Monica. Like it was so much fun there. Yeah. 
So was there something specific from your experience um, working full-time in the Wagner lab that helped you refine what you wanted to research when you were going to go to a PhD? Yeah, there was definitely like two different things, I think. One was just that I loved aging research. Like, honestly, I really liked aging because I felt like it was such a good way to understand what goes wrong in memory function. And so we can actually figure out what is actually working right in healthy younger adult brains. But the other thing was that I also just got really interested in the interactions between attention and memory. And I was just uh, fascinated like that. I mean, you know, I've observed it in myself and I've observed it in friends around me. Like when you're paying attention, you do remember things later. We all zone out at different points, whether it's a lecture or seminar or just, you know, me and you talking on a podcast, like we all zone out at different points. But I think I had never thought about it deeply in terms of like, why does it happen and like the mechanistic um, explanations. And so I kind of just, again, by chance, ended up reading and looking into that. And so just kind of merged all of these interests. And I was just like, oh, I want to study attention and memory. And I kind of want to do that in younger adults now that I have had like a ton of aging experience. Let me like switch to younger and maybe I can come back to aging post my PhD or something. So that's kind of what the main like, um, you know, narrowing down a focus that I took away from my time um, in Anthony's lab. But of course, in terms of skills, there was like a ton of skills that I definitely developed. Yeah, I think it's really cool to hear you say that you sort of discovered this interest in interactions and like attention and specifically like when we are sort of paying attention versus not like, you know, in the zone as it were versus not. Because knowing the, you know, the very, very many features of that very large study that we were working on that is still going, um, yeah. and we've been out of the lab for several years now, um, that you can discover a research interest from working on a study where that's, you know, not the specific research interest. Because I know, uh, like, when I talk to folks who are more junior, they often feel like, oh, in order to be ready to pursue a research topic in grad school, I need to have like very tailored, very specific research experience that like applies 100% to what I want to do in my PhD. And something that I am constantly being reminded of when I talk to people, you know, like you here is that that's, you know, most often not the case is we discover what we want to do, because it's almost kind of a side question from like the projects that we start working on. Yeah, that's 100% true. And I mean, that's honestly what I used to think too, right? Like I was like, oh, I need to really be focused and like keep collecting years and years of experience in this specific domain. But of course, like now I've realized that, well, PhD is a training period and that's where you're training to think about like a more narrow area of research. Thinking about like a different um research area before PhD actually helps you bring in that knowledge. And so you can see the big picture, like whether that's psychology or whether that's any other field, like I think you can see the bigger picture much more clearly. You can see interactions between different factors. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that it's, yep, it's fine. It's actually maybe better to have like a broader background and then come back in, into or come into PhD and like kind of narrow your focus. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, that's what people always say is like a PhD is like becoming an expert in one very, very narrow thing. And there's no, there's no need, I guess, or no rush to kind of start specializing too, too early. Uh, I happen to know, I guess, spoiling the story that you came to Columbia 
after you finished that uh, research position in um, the Wagner Lab at Stanford, but when it came time to sort of think about where you were going to go next, did you feel like, yes, like, I'm going to start applying to PhD programs now, or were you kind of not sure, keeping your options open? Can you talk about the PhD application process a little bit for you? Yeah, of course. Um, so I think I knew, I think somewhere between my master's and working in Anthony's lab, I knew I wanted to stay in academia and at least get my PhD. Um, so at that point, of course, I didn't know what I wanted to do for the future, but I knew that I wanted to get my PhD in neuroscience, or at least in neuroscience of memory, I guess. Um, sometime working in um, Anthony's lab, I think I it just happened. Like, I really, if you ask me, like, when did I start thinking about it? I honestly don't know. And I actually wish I did now looking back because I think I would have planned things out a little bit more. But I think I just started like gathering documents one fine day. And I was just like, oh, let me put this together. <laughs> and then, oh, I need to write an SOP, I guess. Let me start writing my statement of purpose or like personal statement or whatever. And so I just kind of started off there. I don't, I can't really remember like the exact point. But when I did start applying, I attention and memory was like one option, but I definitely kept it a little bit more broad. So I was looking at almost any interaction with episodic memory, like that kind of became my focus. Like I was still interested in like perception and episodic memory. I was still interested in like memory consolidation. So there was a lot of different things. And when I applied to PhD programs, I kind of did apply to a lot of different like areas as well. Um, not just in terms of the regions, but also just um, research area, departments, things like that. Um, so yeah, the one thing that I probably would do differently now is that I would think a little bit more maybe about what I put in my statements for each of those programs looking back. Uh, again, this comes because I didn't really plan it out well in advance. I should have, like, I should have, like, had a plan and, like, sent it, send my personal statements out to my advisors, like, or mentors, like, you know, well in advance, got on their feedback. I kind of did everything a little rushed, and so I didn't get the time to, like, think through a few things, but, I mean, it's fine. Like, I ended up where I'm, and I'm happy, but just, like, something that I would do differently is probably in that process. And I can talk more about that if that's, like, interesting. Yeah, we do. Uh, for those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast, I think you'll remember. But if not, we do have um, in episode five, I believe, of season one, yeah. uh, all about statements of purpose and recommended timelines for starting to write those, getting those out to people that you'd like to edit and give feedback. Um, I believe in there, we generally recommend uh, giving at least uh, six weeks of lead time between, um, I don't remember if it's between starting to write and turning them in or between getting them to uh, your revision people, um, your mentors, and then yeah. turning them in. But giving people a certain amount of time is good, but you know, you're here now. So yeah. that is the important part. It so now, <laughs> yeah. um, now that you're a PhD student and you have been for four years now, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what you like most about your experience in your PhD, and if you want to talk about it, what you dislike most, uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, okay, what I like, I can talk about a little bit more easily. Um, <laughs> so the thing that I do really like about my PhD, or just in general research, is 
um, that every day is different. And I think I knew pretty early on, like even in my undergrad and in my gap year, especially that I could not do like a nine to five. I couldn't do a regular job. Like I just couldn't stick to a routine where I did the same thing. And I think I really like that about research because every day there's a new problem, whether you're coding and you know you have a bug or you're running a participant and someone doesn't show up and you kind of have to figure out what to do on the fly or whatever else it is, like you can't understand a theory or like you know, you're know you trying to understand a paper that's um, really hard to understand and things like that. So it, that's what I really like about research, that it's driven by your curiosity. Most of the time, it's driven by your curiosity and like wanting to find answers to things, whether that is like the research questions themselves or, you know, problem solving and trying to find the answer to a bug that you're um, facing in your code or something like that. So that's like my favorite part about research. The part that I dislike is harder and um, I like, yeah, so full disclosure, like I they gave me some hints about what the questions were going to be. And this is the part like I literally spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to come up with. I really don't know what I dislike. I think I would say that the pandemic hasn't been the easiest. So I also don't know if my view right now is, you know, because we're still sort of in the midst of it and things aren't as um, clear or we're not in the clear as we could be and things like that. So I really don't know if that's uh, those struggles that we've had in grad school have been like pandemic related or just grad school related. So that's why I'm just saying I don't know. But just to like also say that the thing that I was thinking about was just that you don't know what you're doing most of the time. Like and that feeling that uncertainty is like really sometimes hard to get wrap your head around, um, not just in terms of research projects. I think I like that. I like not knowing because you are finding something new. Like that's the whole point of doing a PhD and you are answering questions that haven't been answered before. And so it's of course like um, obvious that like, you know, you may not know the answer when you start off and that's fine. But I think what I mean in terms of uncertainty is just like, oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do after a PhD. I don't know what the job market looks like. Or like, am I even progressing? Like, you know, is, should I be doing so much more? Should I be joining like three more studies? That kind of uncertainty is like maybe what I dislike. But again, I, I will say that maybe that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. So yeah, so that's what I'm not sure about. Maybe my answer would differ if COVID hadn't been a thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess for you, goodness gracious, because it's almost been uh, two years of, of the pandemic. Yeah. So I guess you've had now equal amounts of grad school yes. or of PhD in and out of the pandemic. Um, I mean, I can definitely say from my own experience and talking to other people that this sort of idea that, yeah, grad school is is a place where there's not a lot of benchmarks. And so it is very much hard to kind of know, like, am I doing the right thing? And there's always, you know, like people you can ask, but there's not, you know, a super clear structure of like, here's the benchmarks for success like there are in many other industries. And that is very much something that we try to tell people, hey, if you can handle, like, you know, not knowing whether something is going to be successful right off the bat, you might have to wait months for your data to finish. You might have to wait, you know, even, for example, having to wait hours or days for like a particularly uh, intense analysis to finish running on a computer or a server, or, you know, like waiting the weeks and months for a paper to come back from a journal. 
Um, it is very much like a, it's a long con in academia. Yes. Yes. It's um, delayed gratification pushed to the back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I agree completely. I mean, you said uh, studies taking months. I think studies taking years because my first study from grad school is just wrapping up and I'm in my fourth year. So like, yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's hard sometimes. But I also think it's good to do that because it definitely pushes you outside of your comfort zone. It definitely makes you really think about whether academia is the right fit for you. Um, not the other way around, definitely thinking about yourself and definitely focusing on whether that's what you want out of it. So I do think like the PhD experience itself is like super enlightening and that way it can tell you so much about yourself. Like um, a postdoc, Hallie once told me like, during your PhD, yes, you learn a lot of skills and uh, research skills and like, you know, theoretical knowledge and all of that. But the most important thing that you learn is about yourself. And I actually really think that's super true. And that's what I've seen in the last like four years. So I'm curious, I'd love to hear more about um, the state of your projects these days, if you want to tell us a little bit about your science. Yeah, of course. Like I said before, like, I think I just was interested in interactions between attention and memory. So when I came in, like that was the main thing on my mind. But the specific kind of attention that I was interested in was the fluctuations that we have in our daily life. Like Monica, you just said, like, you know, we zone in and out so much, like even while recording this podcast or like in a seminar or whatever else. Um, and so that kind of attention is really hard to test. There are a bunch of labs like working on it, but it's just really hard to assay those kind of fluctuations, uh, at least behaviorally. And so I was really interested in those kinds of fluctuations and how that impacts memory. We know that attention improves memory, like what you pay attention to. You tend to remember that pretty well later on. But what happens, like just how does that happen or like how does the attention or the fluctuation in attention um, influence the organization of memory? Is it just that when I pay attention, um, somehow my memories are being organized in a better way so that I remember them better later? Or like is there a different mechanism? So questions like that are what I'm working on right now in like my current projects. So it's kind of fun, especially since you study um, how attentional fluctuations impact memory, <laughs> like we are all. I experiencing suffering from attentional fluctuations a lot. Um, so I'm curious, sort of on two fronts, if uh, you have advice for aspiring PhD students based on A, what you've learned in your research, and B, out of your own personal experience as an attention haver and PhD student yourself. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, can those just be like mixed up? Because I really don't know. Oh, sure. How to separate the two. Um, so I think from like my research, I think what I would say is that it is just really hard to capture those fluctuations in attention. And um, I have read a lot of research on like how to stay focused. So I can give some of that. And one thing that's like helped me also specifically is just kind of fidgeting or like playing with a toy while I'm listening to a seminar or while I'm listening to a talk or something like that. And that really helps with my attention like issues. Um, I definitely zone out like much less, but it's just really hard to study the relationship because we don't have the tools yet or the methods yet to kind of assay that in real time. But I'm hopeful that we'll get this sometime soon because I am really interested in that. But in terms of my personal experience, I might have like much more advice. Um, I think just in terms of research, what I would just say is things take a long time, like just projects take a long time. 
getting to where you want to go takes a long time. Um, just don't give up. Just, you know, if you think that's the right way for you and if that's something you really want to do and you're sure about that, then just stick with it. It will work out. And it's okay if your project isn't working out. It's okay if like things aren't going too well. At the end of the day, you are trying to discover something that isn't known. And so that is going to come with a lot of like, you know, uh, failures. Like, of course, you're not going to know every single answer to every single question that you have. And so that's kind of okay. And getting like being okay with that and not taking personally is like a really hard skill, but definitely something like worth having or worth developing rather. So that I think is my main advice in terms of research. Oh, also like maybe keep really good notes. This is not something I've like gotten good at, but keep good notes of why you did a certain thing and how you did it, especially in code, but also otherwise. Um, Cause yeah, four years down the line, I do not remember like most of what I did. Um, but yeah, those are just like fun, I guess, uh, research advice. In terms of my personal experience, at least um, what I can say is for those who do not have like US or like American specific experience or even Euro European like um, research experience. So someone uh, from South Asia or Southeast Asia or something like that, where you do not have the opportunity to like work on psychology or neuroscience research, but you're interested in the field. Um, one thing I would say is like try to get some experience in that field like abroad. So this becomes really difficult, I know, with like visa restrictions and of course COVID. But at least with COVID, there are a lot more re remote research opportunities. So if you're able to like try to maybe volunteer or get some experience. And the reason I'm saying this is just um, a lot of faculty in the U.S. do not know how to evaluate your application when all of your recommenders are from uh uh, people outside of the US or Canada and maybe even Europe and it's really hard for them to judge and they don't they just don't have the framework for it I wish it wasn't this way but unfortunately the um, application system works a lot on these recommendations uh, and so it's really hard to get in because one you might not have enough research experience because you never had the opportunity to obtain it but two even if you did the way the style of writing, the amount of uh, things written, everything varies based on culture, at least what I've seen. And so, you know, it may not be taken at the same value as a, uh, a recommendation from someone uh, that you worked with in the US, even if you've done like the same or like more amount of work. That's just my experience again. Um, but so just try to get some experience in the US. I know most people discourage doing a second master or masters like, you know, where you have to pay for it. And I agree with that if you have the opportunity to get research experience. But if you don't, then maybe that's something you can think about. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Monsi. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was really fun and I hope it's useful. You're, you guys I mean, did a great job. Thank you. I personally found it very useful, and I certainly hope our <laughs> listeners will too. All right, so that concludes this episode. And once again, I hope that listening to this interview has been helpful and enlightening for you. As with previous interviews, we will be updating the show notes to include links to various topics discussed as soon as each new episode launches. And you can find the show notes below this episode in the description if you're watching on YouTube, or in the show notes section of whatever podcast app you are listening on. To receive notifications when new episodes are released, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You're also very welcome to join our email list to get an email each time we release a new episode. And finally, if you found this content helpful, once again, please consider liking the episode on YouTube 
or rating and reviewing the show in your preferred podcast app. And we will talk to you again next time.